Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is engineer, producer, musician, J.J. Blair. First of all, music piracy is evolving, or that's what a study wants you to think. For the most part, we're all under the same impression that streaming pretty much killed piracy. After all, why would you bother pirating something if you can get it pretty much for free? Well, there's a study from the PRS that found that stream ripping services are up by 1,390% in three years. Now, that's a very deceiving figure because when you delve into it a little bit more, you find out that the number of services have gone up, but the actual stream ripping has actually gone down. According to the study, there are 17 stream ripping services. And if you look, there were only four or five a few years ago. And of course, that's why all of a sudden you have this outrageous figure. Now, it turns out that most of the time people are ripping the stream from YouTube with Spotify coming up second and SoundCloud third. The thing about it is, if you go to those extremes to rip a stream from YouTube, most likely you're never going to pay for it anyway. So the music business isn't really losing anything. Now, if you're wondering what the PRS is, it stands for Performing Rights Society, and they're the ASCAP BMI of the UK. It turns out that they have a vested interest, just like most of these industry associations, in telling you that things are bad, but they're there to help things get better. This is the classic case of that happening. So I urge you to look more carefully beyond the headlines of anything like this that looks like it's pretty outrageous and might be kind of scary at first, and you'll find out that maybe things aren't the way you're led to believe. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks and PDFs on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now this is something that's shocking. Sony is shifting away from electronics. Yes, this company that was built on electronics was built on fantastic things like portable electronics, like the Walkman, TVs, CD players, things like that. They're de-emphasizing electronics and shifting instead to services and events. It turns out that once upon a time, 60% of the profits that Sony was making were from electronics, but now that's down to 10%. And the powers that be inside the company feel that they're spending too much on electronic R&D. Now, if you look where they're actually making money, they're making most from financial services, then from movies, then from music, then from video games, and then semiconductors, and then electronics. That all being said, Sony is really making money at electronics. For instance, they're still big in cameras, both consumer and professional, They're big in TVs and displays. They're really big in audio gear. And they have a pretty big hit right now with the vlog cam, which isn't like the Walkman at all from the standpoint of sales, 
but it is a pretty big hit in that they're selling a lot of units. So it makes sense that they're going over to services, kind of sad, but it makes sense. But what they also said they're going to do is go into events, and that's a head-scratcher. Until you look at it a little more closely and you find out that they're actually trying to take live streaming of events to another level by streaming them in 360 degrees, meaning that you could actually pick the seat from where you're watching the event. They're starting this now, and they think it's going to be really big going into the future. We shall see. Either way, it's kind of sad that a company like Sony, which is so big for so long and also had dominated the electronics industry for such a long time, that that part of the business is actually being de-emphasized. My guest this week is musician, engineer, and producer J.J. Blair, who has a long list of engineering credits, including Joe Bonamassa, Kelly Clarkson, Jeff Beck, the Black Eyed Peas, Keith Urban, Weezer, and many more. He's also produced and mixed the Grammy-winning record Press On by June Carter Cash, engineered on a Grammy-winning and number one Billboard Hot 100 record Great American Songbook Volume 3 by Rod Stewart, as well as engineering on P. Diddy's number one hit All About the Benjamins. J.J. is one of the most talented engineers that I've personally worked with, and he's able to hear things that most people miss. He's also an avid gear aficionado with a collection of both music and audio gear that most people can just dream about. During the interview, we talked about working in the studio during the pandemic, simplicity when recording, his placement of favorite microphones, a great Johnny Cash story, and much more. I spoke with J.J. via Zoom from his studio in the Hollywood Hills. Let's start with COVID. How has your business changed? It's changed for everybody, but how specifically has that changed for you? Uh, well, it's, you know, gotten a lot spottier because, you know, just in business is down. Um, there's a lot of, uh, and then certain projects that I, I, I've been working on have, have ground to a halt or whatnot, uh, partly because of COVID and partly because of other things. But, um, it's, you know, it's put a damper on a lot of stuff. I'm a little less busy, but I've been, there've been times that I've been extremely busy, but I just did like a big tracking thing for the first time in a while. And that was, uh, that was interesting because not everybody's on board with wearing their mask all the time. And I, and I just only, only my assistant and I were the only people who were very, very diligent about never being in the studio without our mask on. So it was a little stressful, but I, I've just gotten to the point where I'm not going to judge other people for being however they're they're going to choose to be because it's just it's just I have to do that for my own sanity. I just have to just go like, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to do it, and uh, everyone's going to you know whatever. Yeah. I have to protect myself. So so in terms of COVID, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And actually, you went down a road I wanted to go to anyway. I know that you went to, that's the Nashville session, right, that you're referring yeah. to. Where did you record there? Uh, I recorded at Sound Emporium, which was uh, uh, Cowboy Jack Clement's studio, which then became Sound. And, you know, it was fun for me because some of my favorite country songs were recorded there like Tulsa time and happiest girl in the USA and stuff like that. I was, but uh, yeah, it, it, it was a fun little experience. Did the studio, not the control room, but the studio meet your expectations? 
Well, I had always heard that it's like one of the older rooms and it's a little run down or whatever, but I didn't find that. You know, they had a brand new API legacy console in there. You know, we were supposed to record at Ocean Way and Ocean Way got hit by lightning, which apparently is a recurring thing there because the studio sits on an iron ore deposit, but it also used to be the headquarters for Tony Alamo's church. So I think it's just cursed. <laughs> um, so we had to cancel there and uh, go over and it doesn't have like Ocean Way's uh, mic locker. They have, they have a handful of decent mics, but I had to rent some stuff. Um, but there was a fantastic live room and, you know, it, decent, decent outboard gear. Uh, and, and each room has a, an API. You know, the main thing for me is I, a room's just got to sound good. Uh, the control room, I, I, I rented some Gentle X and uh, they sounded really good in there. Um, the live room sounded great. And you know, there was a good console and not every, you know, not every uh, room can have, uh, you know, the capital mic locker or the East West mic locker. Or the, that's just how it is. But I, you know, and unfortunately I didn't want to travel with too many mics. I, I did bring a bunch, you know, it's, it's different if I'm going into a, a studio in Los Angeles that doesn't have a great mic locker, but they have a good room. I can just show up with a ton of mics. Well, good. That was someplace else I wanted to go with you in terms of mics and, you seem to, like many engineers, use the same thing on the same instruments over and over. So I'm just curious, what did you bring and what did you use? Well, because uh, it was Eric Gale's record and Eric's, you know, a renowned guitar player. And this is a guitar focused record. And I did, uh, they had 167 there. Um, and I've just settled into the thing. First off, to sidetrack, I've sort of gotten into simplicity. Uh, I've tried to figure out how to do as many things, maybe outside of drums. Drums is the only time where I'll try to use as many mics as possible. I've just tried to figure out how to use as few mics as possible to do something. And, you know, the trend over the last you know, I don't know how many years is to add more and more mics onto guitar cabinets. You know, it's like, oh, you got to have the 57 and the 121. Oh, and while you're doing that, don't forget to put the 414 taped to the side of the cabinet and Omni, whatever the hell it is. There's, there's just, and I just decided like, hey, you know, 67, a foot off worked for the Beatles. Um, I, I, there's a picture from uh, an early 70s session in the lobby there at, at, uh, uh, sound emporium of they've got you know 67s like about 10 inches off on all the, the the guitar cabinets and when i did my first record with joe with joe bonamassa producing he was skeptical because he works with someone who i guess puts a lot of things on his cabinet and i said just try this and tell me if you like and he's like wow it sounds just like the cabinet i'm like well that's the point you know uh not the le not the most cost effective way to uh to record uh guitar cabinets because you know what 67s are expensive but it works and if we were at ocean way they had a bunch of them so we had one at sound emporium i rented another one and i brought my 367 uh which is the ac701 version essentially which has a slightly better top end i brought it in case the m49 was not going to be the vocal mic because they did that was what they had for good vocal mics at the studio. And uh, as as I uh, hedged my bets, the 367 also became the vocal mic. But yeah, I used 
67s, uh, short story long, I used 67s on the guitar cabinets. And then for a room mic, I put an uh, 87 in Omni. And what I've discovered is that with just with with the right amount of EQ and the right amount of compression, a 67 a foot off gives me a sound that everyone seems to be happy with, including me. Yeah, I've always felt that as well. It's like, well, they knew what they're doing way back when. I don't know that we got it better. Although, have you ever seen Eddie Kramer's setup, guitar setup? No. Okay, well, he showed me what it was, and, and he said specifically, this is what I used on Jimmy. It's a cluster of three mics, a 57, a 421, and a Bayer M160, right up on the speaker. A 67, about five, six feet back. Mm-hmm. And then way back beyond that, now I don't believe that he used this on Jimmy, but it was a stereo, sure, uh, like a VP22 or something like that, sure. I don't think that was even around when he was doing Jimmy. But anyway, the fact that his cluster of microphones with two dynamics and a ribbon, that was his, his special sauce. Well, I have some thoughts on that. First off, I don't know that I'd want to put a 67 a foot off a 100-watt Marshall. And I can understand wanting to use dynamics and especially, you know, uh, 160s are very robust microphones yeah. that if, of any ribbon, they can really take a lot of, uh, and, and, and that was how I originally was introduced to 160s was seeing people use them on guitar cabinets, um, right next to a 57. I just happened to, uh, discover later that they're also maybe the best room mic for drums in the world. And that's when the levee breaks and everything. And that's kind of how I tend to use them, but I can understand that, but that's also, Guitar is in such a different context on those records because the drums are really small on those records. And they're they're extremely guitar-centric records in a way that I just don't think anyone wants to listen to music or make a record today. You know, they they don't want drums to sound that small. And part of how I'm thinking about guitars when I record them is I'm thinking about them in context with the other instruments. And if you're making a Jimi Hendrix record in 1968 and you have, if you're lucky, you have 16 tracks, you, know, you probably have uh, eight tracks, things are in a very different perspective. So I, I, can, I can see how that would work for Eddie back then. I, you know, and, and there's no wrong way to do anything. Yeah, there was another secret. He had to have an EMT-140, and that was part of it. He, and the interesting thing was most people get a sound, they leave the faders where they're at. Eddie was constantly massaging the faders, just on the guitar sound, constantly. Well, the most important thing about Hendrix's tone is Hendrix. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the bottom line there. Some of my favorite Hendrix sounds are the records that Eddie didn't do. But then again, you know, you listen to uh, the, 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 the Leslie sound on, uh, on Little Wing or what now, and that's, and that's fantastic. You know, I'll never forget... Many years ago, uh, Paige Hamilton, who was the guitar player with uh, Helmet, and then he did some Bowie touring, he came in with an SVT Pitbull. Uh, or not SVT, yeah, not SVT. Uh, uh, VHT. VHT, sorry, yes. Yeah. Anyway, VHT Pitbull. You know, it was the 90s. It had that very aggressive, honky sound, and, and I put a ton of mics on it. I had like a... I think I had a 409 and then I had a, a 
one uh, I had a 57 and then I had a uh, an R84 and that I think I put a little bit off because I knew that's what Steve Albini was doing with like 77s he was he was he was putting 77s a couple feet off and then I had a a C12 VR right on it and then I was kind of moving the the R84 to get sort of the phase and the sweet spot and then I'm EQing the shit out of some of them as I'm joining them all together and I and I made it work and I got a great compliment. He said, man, that's the first time in the control room my amp has ever sounded like like it sounds like to me out there. And I think now I can just do that with one mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That, you know, I, I pick the right mic. Okay, speaking of mics, I admire your, your ears. You can hear beyond what most engineers can. And you, you're very precise in how you listen. Now, that being said, when you're... EQing something as you're tracking. Are you EQing the microphone or are you EQing for the instrument? Well, for, first off, I want to say one thing. I don't think that I can hear things that people can't. I think I've just learned to listen for certain things that people are ignoring because, for example, I'll give you a great example. I listened to the first major label record I ever did. I hear it now and it's like, shit, I hear this. I hear the room in a way that I, there's something going on. I hear a reflection off the room that drives me nuts now. And I just didn't know to listen for it then. Yeah. You know, here's a, a story I love telling is that um, uh, so, someone put up sound clips on gear sluts once of, of like, and they had a U47 capsule and a U67 capsule. And everyone said, which is, you know, which is which capsule? And I was the only person to identify the 67 capsule as being the brighter one because everyone thought about the sound of a 67 being dark. And I just said, no, I know what to listen for. I know what the sound of that capsule is. It had nothing to do with my ears being better or so. I, I, so I say this specifically not just to be less self-aggrandizing, but just to let people know anybody can have a certain ear if you learn to listen for certain things. And, and so a lot of my choices of when I am working and my instincts are based on me spending a lot of time listening and knowing the difference between certain things and knowing what things to listen for. So everyone can hear the same thing. You just, it's about learning what to listen for. And, uh, and, and that's the only thing that I've got on anybody in terms of what I hear is I've just learned to listen for certain things. So there's no, no one, you know, all this golden ear bullshit drives me nuts. There's certain people who are like Edgar Winter can hear a fly fart at 50 yards and, and, and tell you what the interval is. That's a different thing. But in terms of what, what we're doing here, it's, it's about, perspective and learning what to listen for. Now, in terms of EQ, I know what I want it to sound like. And then once I know what I want it to sound like, then I have to hear the track and hear what's it sounding like inside of the track because everything is contextual. And this is something that I've said several times. What we're doing is, and I don't know that you and I ever talked about this, but this is not realism. This is impressionism, what we're doing. You know, you cannot do realism out of a pair of speakers. And it's why I think records, the recorded experience tend to sound, tends to sound better, at least sonically. Maybe there's something exciting to live music. But if someone's down the street, if there's a band playing down the street or someone's playing a record down the street, you can tell the difference between what's a band and what's a live record. And the record's always going to be 
clearer. It's going to be more balanced. It might be a little, you know, because it has compression or whatnot. Um, so my decision is based on, you know, I'm, I'm making, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a Van Gogh rendering of what lilies sound like, not necessarily trying to give you the sound of lilies or water lilies. And, uh, if that makes any sense in terms of that's how I'm, you know, how, how is, uh, how much orange am I applying? Not how much orange is in the thing, but how much orange. So you get the picture in the context of all the other colors and shapes in that painting. You understand what it is. Right. Right. Okay. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. The reason why I bring it up, you'll appreciate this more than, than anybody. And, and forgive me if I've told you this story before, but I did a record where I asked Ken Scott to engineer the tracks. I know where I know where this story is going. I love this story. I've told this story. Oh, I guess I did tell it to you before. It's, it's, tell it again because it's one of my favorite stories. Okay. So anyway, Ken is using the same mics he's used for forty years, longer, forty-five years, and we're doing the, a song where there's actually two different sections to it, and somebody comes up with the idea: Well, what if we actually change the drums out? For the second section so we decided to do that ken pulls the mics back we put the drums in place ken puts some mics over and he says go so wait aren't you going to check everything he says no it's ready and sure enough it was and the realization hit me that he doesn't eq the instrument he eqs the microphones because he knows them so well that he could eq in and out the deficiencies i just thought that was a brilliant way to do it but it was so unique because i don't know anybody else that does and that's why i brought that original question up okay to you. i i see what you're saying so based on that story and this is the funny thing it's like are there great mics that aren't neumann's or you know c or akgs or whatever yes they there are um but when i go to a studio the reason why i want to see those and not some like boutique mic that sounds great is because the mic is its own EQ, and I know what that mic's going to do. I know when I put that mic in this situation, I know what it's going to do. And yes, uh, because of that, I also know where I want to, you know, boost or, 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 or attenuate. But generally, I will pick a mic based on what I, what I know it's already going to give me in terms of EQ. But th I think that's the right way to do it, though, because you're trying to, to match the microphone to the source. So, yeah, I mean, in this basic form, if it's a dark source, you want a bright mic and vice versa. And there's your built-in EQ without actually using the equalizer on the console. Correct. But then, you know, I also want to tweak. I want to give some, if I'm not mixing it, I want to give something where I don't have to put a bunch of EQ plugins on it to give them the session. I just want it to sound like the record when it goes there. You know, I want them to put up the faders and go, this sounds like a record. Uh, so I'm, I'm not afraid to EQ. And part of it is I used to have a different ethos when I started doing this because of the people I was hanging out with. I, I, I was just like, no, you don't want to EQ to tape. And I would do, I try to get very pure sounds to tape and then everything would be done in the mix. And then as we got to Pro Tools, because early on, our early Pro Tools EQs were just not happening. I would try to make it sound as much like a record going in. And then when I started getting all those multi-tracks from all the classic records, realizing, oh, that's what they were doing back then. I'd been, I'd been doing it wrong the whole time, or there's no wrong way, but, you know, yeah. I had made it too difficult on myself. 
by not uh, committing to a sound on the way in. And, and I think part of that was maybe I just didn't have the knowledge and perspective yet to make the decisions as I was tracking to go like, you know, to commit to something and go, this is what this should sound like. This is, this is, this is the sound that I'm going to put to tape that is really going to help set the context for everything for how we're going to make this track sound. But you see, experience dictates that. And if you don't have it and you're doing that anyway, well, I think this will work, then that usually doesn't. Yeah. So it's your experience that really, really wins out on that. Yeah. You know, this goes back to the, 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 the number one rule of recording, which is know thy gear. Because the other day we had a, I was doing a tracking session here. Everyone had their masks on. It was great. And uh, <laughs> sorry, my boss, my boss on the last record watches this. He's going to be pissed. But <laughs> um, we decided not to track with the electric. We're going to track with the acoustic because that's where it went. And so we switched over and went through a couple different acoustics to find the one that kind of worked with the bass and drums and the vocals as we were tracking. Um, but something just wasn't sitting right. It just wasn't sitting right in the mix. And I had an LA-2A on it to try to, and it just wasn't working. And I just knew instinctually, this is wrong. This isn't working. What's going to put this acoustic in the place where it sits with in this context? My little, little voice in my head said, BA-6A. Go to the BA-6A. Plugged in the BA-6A. There it was. It just sat perfectly. Why did I make that choice? Because I know my gear, because I know what each microphone sounds like. I know what each compressor sounds like. I know what each EQ can give me and know your gear so that you don't have to stop and do a shootout in the middle of a bunch of guys trying to get the feeling of a song. Don't, you know, we've talked about how that was a thing where a certain engineer made that really popular in the nineties to, Oh, we have to stop and listen to a bunch of different mic pre's. It's just like, no, you need to know ahead of time, because I don't want to, uh, I don't want to impede the creative process with me being unable to get a, 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 a sound based on something I hear. Yeah, but see, you understand that because you're a musician and you've done it for a living, so you know how that's supposed to work, especially in the studio. And there's a lot of engineers that aren't don't appreciate that. Yeah, well, that's part of it, but also. I've worked with enough musicians who don't have patience for that. Yeah. And I don't like watching them get frustrated. I'm also a producer and I don't want to lose the vibe. Yeah. You know, like you got to know when the energy's in the room and you have to be sensitive to that. And when you're trying to get creativity out of the people in the other room, you have to know uh, when you're stepping on their toes and, and, and deflating the creative energy. And I, and I work with a bunch of, cranky old motherfuckers who've been doing this for a lot of decades who just don't have the patience for certain things. Yeah. And, and, and they will let you know. I, I think I've told you the story about with Johnny Cash, how he, he, had, uh, uh, he had just come out of a coma and he'd saved up his strength for a week to do this one performance. And I didn't have a patch bay. I just had some ADATs and I'm trying to find... I'm trying to like negotiate that whole thing. And he's letting me go. He's like, we got to do this. Like, are we ready? You know, he's letting me know, like, it's time to do this. Like get your shit together because I only, I've like only have one take in me before I have to go take a nap for another three days. 
So um, I, I didn't get the luxury of going like, well, let's try this mic. Okay, now let's see what this mic sounds like. You know, I got one take in the guy and I got to get that. Uh, and he wasn't cranky. He was lovely. But, I'm, you know, some people are cranky. That, that, that was very instructive uh, with letting me know where's the magic. The magic's in that guy there. And I might only get one take out of him. The magic isn't, this isn't the magic here. This is not the magic. That's 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 the impediment to getting the magic. If I if I get caught up in that shit. All right, you're building a new studio, and I'm curious if you've bought any new gear for it. I bought a new console. That was the only thing. Uh, I will probably buy a new computer, uh, and you know, I bought some speakers. I bought some new mains. What did you buy? I because I don't use mains. And I think for, and, and uh, they are so incredibly expensive. I don't mix on mains. They are just to please clients. I bought some uh, Genelec 1038s, which I think will work in the room. Uh, I hope they work in the room because I don't want to spend tens of, thousand dollar, t- tens of thousands of dollars on speakers when I'm really going to be mixing on my 1031s that sit on the console. Yeah, right. I just need something that can fill up the room for the people in the back on the couch. And I'm hoping the 1038s will will work, um, and they sound nice. I like Genelex, you know. But yeah, mains are mains get expensive, man. Yeah, real fast. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind. You know, I I dropped a large chunk of change on the console, so I don't mind spending it there because I'm going to use all of that, and that's going to bring people to the room. Because of you, I bought Amphions. Are you enjoying them? Yes, very much. I I like my Amphions. I like to get my sounds on my Genelex. I like to mix on my Genelex because I understand them more. But then when we're tracking, I like to switch over to the Amphions because my ears last longer on them. They don't have that sort of hyped high end that the uh, that the Genelex have that I just know, you know. Yeah. I've just been using them for 26 years. Okay, so speaking of the console, when you're mixing, how much is in the console? How much is in the box? Zero is on the console. Everything is on the box until my mix bus, and then I print through some outboard. I don't know if we've ever discussed my philosophy. I like to leave a mastering guy next to nothing to do. I want to give him something where he's maybe going to shave a quarter dB or a half a dB one or two places in his environment where he or she can hear something on the mastering rig and they're going to do maybe half a db of reduction uh compression if any i like to give them a finished product because i know how i want it to sound and i've just been i've been doing it long enough that i can go back and forth and listen to different references and go like oh uh and i just find that my analog eq on the mix bus just makes me a little bit happier than my digital eq does on the mix bus i like my nti eq3 in a way that the plug-in version just doesn't, I don't know what it is, but there's just something about it that translates better in terms of that high end, that little sheen that I want across uh, uh, my mix. You know, for the most part, I think I get a little more flavor out of my outboard bus compression, my my outboard manly uh, very mu. Even though the plug-in one is fantastic, there's just there's just something about mine that uh, just gives me a little bit of flavor that I that I maybe I'm imagining it. But the EQ I'm not imagining for sure. 
I like a teeny little bit of compression uh, on my bus. I, I, I hit it with about 2 dB of compression, more because not that I can't get it to sound good without it, but there's a certain finishedness to it and and a certain pumping thing that I can do for excitement, but I don't, you know. That's what I would normally do too. No, you only have to use it when you're trying to beat the FM or AM transmitter, or if you're trying to beat compression algorithm on a lot of streaming services. Yeah, well. <laughs> We've been doing our Tuesday live gigs uh, on Facebook, you know, my Tuesday gig that I've been doing forever. So now we've been doing it on, on Facebook live. And I realized in order to get it to sound good on Facebook, I have to compress the shit out of everything and compress the bus. And that's the only way that I can beat the compression algorithm of the streaming. Otherwise my drums are super small, like nothing sounds good uh, and powerful. So, you know, there's, there's that. What's your favorite mixing trick? Is there something that you use more than others? I'll tell you something I'm into these days because it's always got to be about the vocal. I like a fair amount of compression on a vocal. My, I first will reach for the UAD 1176A. I will do the, the Bones House setting that I read him talk about that he used a lot, which is 12 to 1, attack 6, release 7 a lot of compression and it's very immediate and I don't have to do, not only do I not have to do a lot of automation because I'm lazy and I don't want to have to like automate every word. I love the sound of it. I love the immediacy of it. I love that I can hear the breath. You know, I, I showed this on my Instagram page a couple of weeks ago that when you compress, it brings up a lot of second order harmonics. And I love that thickness it gives. I love the particular sound of that compressor. I love the top end of it. And sometimes it's not right for some people. And I'll maybe switch to a Fairchild or, or, or a 176 or something. But 90% of the time, that's the perfect compressor. And then I like to use the Cooper Time Cube and do offset delays right and left. So it just kind of comes up and gives it a little width and a little presence. And you have to be careful because it'll sound like a bad bathroom chorus or something if you bring it up too high but just enough it can really help the vocals sit stand out in the mix in a certain way so that's that's one favorite trick that i kind of do a lot <clears throat> and sometimes if it's very pop i just mix something for boy george yesterday believe it or not uh, who sounds who sounds so cool now his, his voice has done the thing that Joni's voice has done over the years where it's just the formant has dropped and he still sings his ass off, but it's, it's a whole different, like smoky rich thing. But I was told George really wants the vocal to be up center and, and, and I wanted to give sort of a modern thing. So I also did the, uh, the offset even tied, you know, on one side pitched up. Yeah. Up one side, down the other. Yeah. 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 And, and it just, you know, and, it can be, it can sound really wrong if you do it too much, but it's, it's, it's like, it's like salt in your soup too much. You've ruined the soup and that really helps the vocal stand out. Uh, so that's one trick. The other thing just has to do with basically how I, how I compress drums, how I treat a room. Unlike as like I was saying, unlike, you know, Hendrix records back then or any record that was made back then, People want drums to be really vital and really upfront, and 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 
that's something that again can be overdone but um you know i like to compress the kick i like to compress the snare and i like to do parallel compression on the bus and really bring that out in a way that uh makes drums vital and and really drives a really drives a record um so that's kind of those would be sort of my two favorite mix tricks okay uh last question trends in the business now this could be pre-covid post-covid doesn't matter what do you see happening kind of like globally long term so i i'm the worst person ever at keeping my finger on the pulse of what's happening i'm always i'm always behind in terms of business trends i'm really not sure and i that is not where my you know i i i'm i'm not great at predicting business trends i don't know that i'm even great at predicting musical trends i'll notice things that are happening what have you noticed then well like a couple years ago i noticed uh every hipster wanted a shitload of reverb on their track um i noticed there was a period where i noticed everything needs a banjo um (laughs) in terms of uh you know everyone everyone needs to distort the vocal right now and my my girlfriend bird york who is a very accomplished recording artist and fantastic singer and songwriter always likes to point out to me that it's bad to get too caught up in whatever production trend is good at the time because it'll make you sound very dated now there are certain things you can do that are classic and have endured forever but I go back and I listen to certain records from the '80s, and my head hurts because of the gated, uh, the you know, the gated reverb or whatnot. Uh, so, production trends can be uh, they can be a trap, and they can really sort of take the timeliness out of your music. In terms of trends of what's going on, I notice everyone has to record from home. I've taken for granted how hard it is to record drums <laughs> because with the, the drum tracks that I'm I'm receiving from people, um, it's like, oh, that's right, it's a thing. It's not, it's not, it's not as easy as as it looks. And and so there is a trend of badly recorded stuff that, uh, and it's it's just getting more so because uh, musicians shouldn't have to be engineers; they should just be creative, you know. I can do both things because I can do, I can do this in my sleep. I've put enough hours into this that it's a reflex. I don't have to think about it. And so I'm getting less good performances from people because they're spending their energy learning how to be technical people. Um, and so that's a trend that is, I think is making music worse right now. And uh, there's a trend that um, I hate saying this cause I don't want to put down a genre of music. But I think there, I'm, without citing it, there is a genre of music that is making music less musical and it's lowering the bar. And I don't want to sound like a get off my lawn old, old fuddy-duddy, but there is music that is just not, it's, it's some of our tools have made it too easy for people to make something that people can listen to. Uh, and, and I'm disappointed that we're not getting a higher bar for what pe- what the kids want to hear. You can find out more about JJ at jjblairrecording.com. That's jjblair, B-L-A-I-R, recording, all one word, dot com. 
and also hear more from him on podcast number 181. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.